Hi, I'm Andrew. And I'm Spencer. And we're here at the Slowdown's New York headquarters. You're listening to Time Sensitive, a podcast where we profile curious and courageous people in business, the arts, and beyond who have a distinct perspective on time. Welcome to episode 42 of Time Sensitive. On this episode, Andrew's in conversation with the philosopher and new school professor, Simon Critchley. What'd you guys talk about? We talked about a lot of things, as always. We both really love Simon. I was very <laughs> excited to do this episode. I think, you know, something that came out in the episode that I was thinking about was he said, you can say things that are deep and straightforward. That commitment to clarity doesn't mean you have to sacrifice rigor and seriousness. And that's really what I admire most. And I'm excited to share. Sounds with like you. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's people like Simon that can make incredibly complicated things quite simple mm. and doesn't confront your intellect in his description of how he sees the world. He thinks out loud and he, by doing so in a way, teaches us what thinking can be and mm. what thinking is. Um, he's got a lot more questions than answers. And uh, I'm very excited to share his whole story, which is fascinating. I think, you know, if you met Simon when he was 16, 17 years old, you would have never imagined that he'd be the Simon Critchley that we all know today. Mm. I'm always inspired when I'm around him. He's full of surprises. Excited to hear this. Before we begin the episode, though, I'd first like to thank our season three sponsor, the German watchmaker Alanga and Zuna. Alanga and Zuna also has an affinity for making incredibly complicated things quite simple. Yeah, I mean, a great example of this is the Alanga and Zuna outsized date, which enables a date display with digits that are around three times as large as those in watches that are comparable in terms of size. Since the company presented its first new wristwatch collection in 1994, this complication has characterized the design of many of its timepieces. And the newest Saxonia outsized date models, which come in white gold and pink gold, create a sense of harmony between the outsized date and the symmetrically positioned second style in the most elegant, most mm. rational, beautiful way. Yeah, and underlying it, it's incredibly complex, even if on the surface it does look quite simple. So thanks to Alanga and Zuna for their continued support of Time Sensitive. To find out more about their timepieces that feature this patented outsized date, visit alange-soehne.com. And now, here's Andrew and Simon. Welcome, Simon. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you very much. In the midst of a global pandemic. Indeed. So I wanted to begin today's conversation with disappointment. <laughs> disappointment is a big theme in your life and work. Yeah. Um, and part of the thing that I want to get through exploring a bit of your biography through is disappointment. You've argued that philosophy begins in disappointment. Right. Um, which I want to give you a moment to explain for the listeners. Oh, right. Well, I thought I should have, um, you know, an overview of a big story about 20 years ago. People like the idea of philosophy beginning in wonder because it sounds wonderful. It sounds very kind of Terence Malick. Wonder, which, of course, is a view that Aristotle attributed to philosophers that came before who were wrong. So it's not a view that Aristotle himself held. But um, it's a popular view. So, you know, <laughs> I looked at the world and thought, What's that? that's not a source of wonder. That's a source of crushing disappointment. So philosophy can begin there. And then I began to kind of build a picture of all sorts of different kinds of disappointment, but mainly Political disappointment and religious disappointment. Religious disappointment, death of God. Political disappointment, what it is to live in a world that is unjust and where blood is being spilt in the streets as if it were champagne, as Dostoevsky says. So that gave me a kind of frame 
And that organised my work until, I'd say, I don't know, 10 years ago. It's still there. I still kind of have it in mind, but um, got other things to say. It becomes a kind of a one-trick pony, you know. And also, it's, it begins at this point, it doesn't end there. Yeah. Right? It ends in um, in something else, which is more affirmative. But I think it's good to um, keep your mind in hell and despair not. That's kind of my approach. Keep our minds in hell. The productive sort of angle that, that, that I've learned from you is that disappointment is can also be the source of creativity. And in many yeah. cases is. How did you come to that? I don't know. I mean, it's... Um... Is it simply that you feel most creative when you're most disappointed? Yeah, right. Yeah, right. When I'm really, when I'm really miserable. I, yeah, I wish that were true, but that's not even true. And I could measure that. I mean, I remember when I was really, really sad and depressed in my 20s, I made these notes. And then when I was less sad, a bit later on, I made other notes and I compared them and they were more or less the same. So that right. my mood didn't seem to affect my thoughts entirely. I could tell that story. It's a good story to tell. Yeah. But I'm not sure it's um, true. Uh, but in relation to creativity, <clears throat> I think that I'm a, a product of the, the world that the 1960s left behind. Um, and the world of the 60s, peace, love, revolution, and all of that, was a world that people like uh, me experienced as a a kind of horrific, collapsing, kind of J.G. Ballard, drowned world of disaster and social decay and uh, a kind of a dystopia from the, the get-go. So I think the disappointment really finds its voice in music, um, which is really, for me, how everything started listening to music and listening to songs and um you know i think someone like david bowie who i love as someone who is working in relationship to a disappointed context it's a world which is decayed a world which alienates which um which threatens to engulf us at every moment which we have to kind of stay away from and it's in relationship to that that we can um, perhaps make something happen. And so that like, well, disappointed context is the context kind of out of which things like punk emerged. And that's kind of where I... Defining yourself by negating. Yeah. In a way. Yeah. yeah. So not peace and love, but hate and war and things like that. And it was a feeling of, um, I guess, why punk really worked in the UK and uh, and worked in a different way in the US although you could say that so much of the good stuff came from from here which is obviously true was because I mean Britain was going through a period of real social and political disintegration in the 70s at a national level and punk just spoke to that and it found a context that was um incredibly receptive and so um that was where I grew up. And then everything that I did in terms of what became study, which was much later, kind of flowed from that for me. Yeah. You know, you're a philosopher, I guess, by craft and a writer. Yeah, I, I think I, w I would say that I teach philosophy. A philosopher by accident, I always think of calling yourself a philosopher always strikes me as pretentious. You're just guilty by association. Right. I teach it and I can teach it. And I have an odd relationship to the academy, although I'm an academic, right? That's how I teach students and that's how I make a, make a living. And that's fine. And then, then, yeah, then I write. Well, I was curious, how much of being a philosopher is, and, and you can speak about others, I guess, in this case, if you're not going to claim being a philosopher, is about your own life, about your own experience. It's about how you turn the um, idiosyncrasies and neuroses and weirdnesses that make a a personality into something like a a style, into an, an idiom, and that takes time. 
everybody's lost, everybody's messed up, everybody's got problems. But um, I think it's a question of how you can take those problems and discipline them with form, right? which in my case is the form of, of writing, of trying to read and explain difficult texts and stretches of argument. And uh, somewhere between those idiosyncrasies and weirdnesses and the discipline of a form, you can begin to find a voice. Mm. Um, but if it were just me talking, that would be as uninteresting as anybody else talking about right. their problems. Which is how a lot of people who who are who haven't delved deep into it can think of philosophers. It's sort of mm -hmm. like the, the cliche of a philosopher, someone who sits around and thinks about stuff and doesn't really do anything. Yeah, yeah. I think of what I do as really, you know, having decided at a certain point that weekends were a disappointment. <laughs> I think it's the, the Kirsten Dunst character in the Lars von Trier film. Which one is it? Melancholia? Yeah. I'm always the kind of person that expected more from a sunset. Right. I mean, so you begin from that idea. It's a sunset. It's nice, but I was expecting more. And you take the gaps, the weekends, you know, and you say, well, into these spaces and times, I am going to spend time on my own and try and cultivate something, try and really work. I've worked in, in all the gaps all the time forever. I've had a great time and I haven't, you know, I've got friends and a, something of a social life, but it's about persisting with that. And, that, and the odd, oddity of doing that is persisting with that largely on your own where really there's no um, external confirmation that what you're doing and what you're doing looks like the activity of just a crazy person uh, who won't leave the house. Right. And that's, that's, off. that's what I look, yes. Yeah, so I'm just, a lot of the time I'm sitting at a desk or I'm lying down. You were built for quarantine. I was, I love, yeah, I love, this has been, this has been, for me, I mean, the world has finally, you know, turned into how I've always experienced it. I mean, I've had, I've had a really good pandemic. It's been, uh, I haven't been ill, you know, touch wood, but the kind of anxieties, uh, worries, fears, hypochondria, insomnia, all the things that, you know, periodically can affect one, suddenly everybody else is in that, that situation. It's like welcome to the party. Yeah, it's like, you know, this is, this is how it is. I, so I've found the whole thing... I mean, incredibly sad at the human level. I mean, things that touch me, like I live in Cobble Hill in Brooklyn, and, you know, there was a moment in April when 42 people died in a seven-day period at the Cobble Hill nursing home, which is somewhere I walk past a lot. And things like that hit you really hard, and what was happening in the hospitals. And so there's that catastrophe. But in terms of uh, the mood of the pandemic and how people were feeling, I suddenly found myself kind of, yeah, mm. finally, this is what people should be experiencing. So I want to go all the way back. Okay, all the way back. All the way back. Mm. Where did you grow up? I grew up in a town called Letchworth Garden City, which is uh, about 30 miles north of London. But my family are all from Liverpool, Liverpool was always considered to be home. We were from the north. This was very important and became more important when we ended up in the south as the one bit of our family that had, had moved south. And moved south because of really uh, the effects of the, the Second World War. Liverpool was uh, flattened in the Second World War. The Germans bombed it because it was, you know, a major port connecting... Britain to the Atlantic economy and all that stuff. So Liverpool was home, and to come from Liverpool meant that we were meant to be funny. You were able to be able to do a turn, right, sing a song, and uh, to be kind of, you know, engaging, be well-mannered. My family, it's, it's a working-class family and a very articulate working-class family, but not a family that read books or considered education to be important, both my parents left school at 14 but really it was a that was a time defined by the second world war and they were both um evacuated from liverpool did that give you certain license to handle school at that age 
in the way that you did? With me? Well, I went to what you call here elementary school. And then at 10 years old, I realized that um, there was an exam back then. It was called the 11 plus that you took in, uh, in Britain. And that 11 plus exam determined whether you went to a grammar school or you went to a secondary modern school. And secondary modern schools, what I heard about them is that 12 year olds with beards, like these giant, you know, bearded 12 year olds. Sure, they were 12 or were they just they were, they were, back? They, were, they, were, they hit puberty at 10, <laughs> these people. And they were, they, they were huge. And they took you into the bathroom and shoved your head down the toilet. And I remember thinking, I don't want my head shoved down the toilet by bearded 12 year olds. So I decided to work uh, harder and I got into the grammar school. Uh, grammar school then was uh, an academic education. It was a yeah, public school, but you got a more academic education. The The older teachers uh, wore black gowns. Uh, the younger teachers were kind of hippies. And then uh, I failed everything uh, at 16. I took exams. My mum and dad broke up when I was 14, and I was kind of wildly free. And I thought that school was ridiculous so I decided to fail all my exams. You decided to fail or you failed I decided. I, I very purposefully uh, decided to fail everything. What does that look like? Just not showing wrote, up? Or? I wrote weird, you know, science fiction stories in my... Oh, so you actively yeah, tried. Actively messed things up on the papers. Right. And I thought I was being so clever. Yeah. And I did pass geography. So I got a C grade in geography. Something to do with sheep farming or... Right capital cities. And then so I left school at 16 with no qualifications and all my friends had got some qualifications and they were going off to do A-levels to, to do the exams that you would take in order to maybe go on to college. And I didn't because I was already playing in bands. And so I was obviously going to be a pop star. So I just needed cover. So I went to a catering college for two years. And not a good catering college and, and not good exams, that kind of really shitty one. And you weren't working? I was working, I had all sorts of jobs. I was thinking about this recently because I was, I was trying to explain it to someone. I worked in, a, I worked in factories because my, my dad was working in factories. So from 14, I was working at the weekends in factories. When I described this to like students of mine, it sounds like a, I was living in a Dickens novel or something, you know? And I, I got a number of industrial injuries. I lost the top of this finger that you can't see, listeners can't see, but that was when I was 14. That came off on it. I was trying to put steel metal through rollers. And then another much worse accident when I was 18. So the industrial life was not for me. Right. Although factories were where I, that's what I knew and what I grew up around. And that was... Uh, and at the same time, trying to play music, fucking yeah, up your hands. And play, and we, we rehearsed in the factory because that was the only space that we had. So we'd take our gear to the factory, which, of course, ruined my ears because there was so much reverberation and the acoustics were terrible. Did so, these injuries have a kind of lasting impact? Yeah, I mean, yeah. You've talked about them before. I'm rested disabled in my, in my left hand. I, so in the UK, I'm actually, I'd be entitled to a disabled sticker and a parking space. I can't make a fist. And I've got skin grafts. And it, it's a real mess. And I was a guitarist. Yeah, well, that's what I keep thinking. So well, I was told after two weeks that I could keep my hand because the hand was effectively severed and then put back on. It's a long story with the accident. I won't go into that. And I didn't realise that I, was, I could have lost it at that point. But anyway, so that was, a, that, okay, so I can keep it. And they said, well, you never play guitar again. And so I bought a synthesizer. <laughs> I bought a synthesizer. It was a kind of wasp synthesizer, one of the first more cheaply available synthesizers. And then I, I found a way of playing guitar Really, really. Well, thank God you're in punk bands. Yeah, it, it, yeah. I was playing. It wasn't. It wasn't difficult stuff. <laughs> I was playing. It wasn't technically that complicated. And then I found a way to kind of play in a rudimentary way, and then played in bands. So going back to the disappointment theme, that's kind of the disappointment was that that didn't work out, and bands around me that we played with, you know, went on to do great things. I mean, I played in bands we supported. Like Susie and the Banshees. The and, police. Uh, the police, yes. Yeah, the police, yeah. Those frauds. 
and they I mean they look great and good guitarists that but they we supported them and they went and nothing happened to us we had a manager who was a drug dealer and um never made any money and we kept trying to make it and then when I was about 21 and I this time I was reading a lot more because another stage in the story I could tell the story about working in a billiard hall and how I got introduced to I want to hear about you being a lifeguard though oh right I was a lifeguard yeah 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 <laughs> like Joe Biden yeah. right yeah <laughs> it was uh when I was 19 to 21 I was working in swimming pools Firstly, as the um, the toilet attendant, I should point out, I wasn't. So I say lifeguard because it sounds more grand. My my job was actually I was in the the cloakrooms, and the cloakrooms are basically you know getting people's clothes, hanging them up, giving out empty hangers, and then uh, and making sure that the toilets were were clean. So I was a toilet cleaner, which again is a is a good job to have because. In the summer days at the pool, when there'd be a lot of action in the toilets, the drains would get clogged and you'd have to take a manhole cover off and get in there with a hose. Clogged up, we got <laughs> the excreta of 10-year-olds, you know, and it was, that was, yeah. So then I, I eventually graduated to poolside work. Mm. But what I couldn't do, either in the toilet cloakroom or on poolside, was read. I had to deal with people. I was forbidden from reading and this really got me interested in reading so i read and i read and read and read and i'd had this this accident like i said and the accident this isn't because it's dramatic it was dramatic but there are two ways of thinking about life and how the early of how, how you shape a, a self a personality one view which is the common view which goes back to freud is that you know it's the early stages of your life Mother, father, infancy, this is when you form your neuroses, your problems, or give you capacities of love, incapacities of love, blah, blah, blah. Another view, which you can find in uh, Sartre, because Sartre didn't believe in the unconscious, Sartre had this idea of what he called a radical project, and um, that you could begin at whatever point in a life, certainly not at the beginning, and that radical project, that kind of cut is what could then, once you made that decision, then you became that person. And the example that he liked to give was the example of, of Genet, of Jean Genet, the, the French writer, who, of course, had been in prison um, most of his life. And Genet's decision, when he was 14 years old, was to become a thief. Right. right? And Genet became a really good thief until he was caught. And Sartre says, that's what's interesting about Genet. 14, he says, I am a thief. And I think about that in relationship to the accident. When I was 18, I also suffered significant memory loss. So most of my childhood uh, disappeared. I, one of the effects of physical trauma is memory loss. So I had that in a very profound way early on. Things came back, but there was a period when I, in a sense, didn't really remember much about my childhood. That also gave me the possibility to kind of reinvent things. It was like a blank slate a tabula rasa 18 i was a bit of a mess but i had enough money to get by i had different jobs and the accident had less the situation where i was getting paid for six months basically to do nothing apart from take a lot of speed at the weekends and go and listen to bands and play in bands but it gave me a kind of that kind of blank slate meant that i could then begin to fill things in with yeah. uh whatever I wanted. And that was a real feeling of freedom, actually. And a reset. I mean, Absolute a reset, reset that drew you to, to University of Essex, which mm -hmm. changed everything. And so one question I have when I think about your history is, you're 22, everyone else is maybe 18. Yes, right, yeah. What did that feel like? Well, it's great because I was, I was older and cooler and I'd done all the things that 18-year-olds wants to do in a lot more interesting circumstances. So I had those few years advantage. So I could be cool in their eyes. But when I got to university at 22, I thought, well, now I really, I really, really start to work. You know, there's a library. There are clever people here. I'll find out who those people are 
and I will spend time with them and the rest of the time I'll spend in the library and I will just throw myself into it. And that's what I did. You had so much agency at that moment when I think about it. Yeah, it's like absolutely. Those four years, five years of mm -hmm. time and having these other experiences, you were just in such a different position to take advantage of that context. Yeah. I mean, for whatever reason, you know, this is Dave Chappelle's advice, right? You know, be nice and don't be scared. I think this is, you know, advice I give to anybody. Very hard to do. People are not nice a lot of the time. They're ourselves to each other and people are scared. For whatever reason, back then, I wasn't scared. I was anxious, you know, but I wasn't scared. And I thought I could, um, I could use this. I could read everything. Well, for five years, you were practicing vocalizing against fear, which is the yeah. music you're making. I mean, oh, the, right. what was punk really? I'm not scared. Yeah, yeah, not being scared. Yeah, yeah, it's true. I mean, I've thought about that a lot in, in, in terms of this story of yours, that you enter school at that moment. Mm -hmm. You've been playing punk music. Mm -hmm. You had a major hand injury. Yeah. You're kind of very comfortable in that space. Yeah, it was. It, it felt like a continuation. I wasn't the only person that played in punk bands that wound up at the University of Essex. There was a, a bass player. Actually, two of the, there was a band called The Lurkers, who everyone's forgotten now, but they had a great song called Shadow. With shadow, shadow, shadow. It was really kind of simple song, and um, two of them wound up doing sociology at Essex and and universities back then. And this is what's so kind of why I ended up doing what I'm doing. They just felt like these free spaces where there were these weird people, teachers, lecturers, professors, and these people felt they were intelligent. They were they were wild. And there was one in particular that affected you. Oh, right. Bernasconi. Yeah. I did really well in my first year exams. And then I was kind of identified as talent and then cultivated and um, basically allowed to do what I liked. And then I did what I liked. And Robert Bernasconi was, um, was incredibly kind to me and gave me enormous amounts of time. So I spent you know, hours just talking to him about things. And did he help you do the switch from literature to philosophy? This is what made it so interesting. The, the people that you were taught by were so odd. The guy that got me to do philosophy was someone called Frank Cioffi, C-I-O-F-F-I, who's a New Yorker, New York Italian, uh, Sicilian, who'd grown up somewhere close to Washington Square. Both his parents died. He's brought up by his uncle, aunt. At the end of the Second World War, he was in the, in the US Army and was involved in kind of mop-up operations in France. And then somehow, because the GI Bill wound up going to Oxford and doing philosophy. And he was six foot four tall and didn't write very much and was just this kind of wild character full of tremendous stories I was sitting in his office because I had this, I said, I'm not sure whether I should do philosophy or not. And he had no interest in that. He just started to say, well, when I was in Singapore teaching, he said there was this moment because I thought that, I thought there was no problem of, of other minds when it came to animals. I thought, well, you know, animals, it's not really an issue for me. I don't really think about the question of whether they suffer or not. And then in Singapore, we had a problem with cockroaches in the offices. And so I put down this poison in my office. And then I come in the morning and you see these cockroaches wriggling in pain in their death agony. And at that point, the problem of other minds came alive for me again. So he tells stories like that, Frank. And he would just, and he, his only advice to me when I got a job in that department was uh, always check your fly, right? That was his only advice, always check your fly, which is actually really good advice. Because um, you don't want to be teaching with um, your fly undone. So these were weird, bohemian, free characters who I kind of loved. Yeah. And, and then I thought, well, I could... Found a home. I found a home. And I thought, well, I could do that. So my life's work would be trying to save souls, right? People that were like me. And it's still the way I try and think about teaching, that I, I'm looking at a group and I'm always trying to find the one or two weirdos and 
pull them out and say, you could do this and this and this and this, and you find out what they've been reading and, and just push them. Because if someone is is clever and, you know, turned on as a mind, then they don't need much uh, teaching. If you can, you know, say, you know, just go on, that's that's enough. And say, you know, uh, go on, do that. And y- yeah, you can do that here. You know, it's a question of sense of permission and licence, I think is really important. So for me, universities were these amazing free spaces where people could just you know, develop their minds. And I worked like a dog, but it was, um, yeah, it was, it was a joy, you know? Well, and you had some very early success, you know, at 29, you've got this job in the philosophy department at Essex. Yeah. And then your book, the ethics of deconstruction mm-hmm. came out, which became a huge deal, which a lot of people won't necessarily know about that history, but but help uh, us understand what caused the stir and also what was the experience for you? What was the sort of confluence of things? So I went to France after I finished my degree because I thought that this is where interesting thinking is going on. Lacan and all, oh, these are the all people these you people, were... Derrida, Foucault, Deleuze, all these people fascinated me. And back then, uh, much of it wasn't translated. So... Uh, I read French, I, I taught myself to read French slowly and then ended up doing a degree in French, writing in French, which is actually another bit of advice that I give people. If you can write in a foreign language, it's actually a really good discipline. It really cleaned up my style. So I wrote a 200-page dissertation in French with a relatively small vocabulary. It was in France that I really learned to do research and... Um, how to use a library and organise a bibliography. And finished the PhD, got a job, and I'd written this this, this PhD dissertation on um, Levinas and Derrida. Levinas, who was this Lithuanian, French, Jewish philosopher who I kind of fell in love with when I was 22 and still the only philosopher that I would, you know, defend. Most of the others you've... you've... Well, they can, they can come and go, right? Yeah, but Levinas, I just, I just, I just think I, w- I will defend him, you know, with my last breath. And he has very poor arguments as well. It's not a strange thing about him. He doesn't really argue. He's not a very good philosopher. <laughs> He's just got really interesting intuitions. And so, back then, the philosophical avant-garde, as I understood it, was represented by by Derrida, and Jacques Derrida's work was what people were thinking about. He was like, you know, people talk about soccer or whatever or basketball there'll be there'll be basketball players and then there'll be the basketball players basketball player or the soccer players soccer player and uh Derrida was like the philosopher's philosopher he was like you know he's like the Lionel Messi he could do anything and I thought that his work was driven by a very clear ethical commitment and I couldn't figure out why no one else had seen this because it was seen as being you know the deconstruction was free play, relativism, you know, postmodernism, all that. And it's stuff that it's still in the air with people like Jordan Peterson and all the people still say that stuff. His work is driven by a very clear ethical commitment, which I linked to this other guy, Levinas. Published that. And then the good fortune I had was that there was an idea, a proposal for Derrida to get an honorary doctorate at the University of Cambridge, and the philosophy department decided against it. And it became a sort of fight, a kind of a cause celebre. Eventually, he did get approval to receive the honorary doctorate. But this was front page news in Britain. The front page, I think, of the independent newspaper or The Guardian was, I think, cognitive nihilism hits English city. Right, so cognitive nihilism, Derrida hits English City, Cambridge, and this was people were reading about this. What everybody was clear about was that Derrida was a kind of value-free nihilist thinker, and and my book came out arguing the opposite, and so it got some play, and then I found myself yeah you know, with a different kind of audience, and that was that was a lot of fun. Didn't shift their decision to give him a doctorate or not, though? They, they eventually did. Do you think so, your book had anything to do with that? No, no, nothing at all. No, no. And Derrida and I kind of fell out about the book because he'd been very kind to me, but he, um, 
was very sensitive to criticism. And I, I criticised him very hard at the end of that book on questions of politics, which wasn't developed in his work. And he, um, he took umbrage for a while, but then eventually we, you know, we got back along. But I was never, I saw a lot of him, but I was never really close to him in the way that people were close to him. You put something together and it gets some play, you know, it gets some attention. So, of course, everyone's saying, well, the next thing you should do should be exactly the same thing, right? Do ethics of deconstruction too, right? Uh, More ethics of deconstruction. And I decided very soon after that book that I was going to go in a completely different direction. And then spent five years writing a book about philosophy, literature, and nihilism and other stuff, which is just a very different book. And that's something that I've I've tried to do over the years is that when you find the form, you know, art, photography, cooking, everything is about finding the form and philosophy too. Once you've found the form, in a sense, it's no longer of any interest. Then you need to take a right angle move in a, in a different direction and find something else. So when things have gone particularly well, then to go off in a totally different direction, just to see where that Which will take is something you. we're going to get to, but I mean, is why your books are so varied. Yeah. They all kind of ladder up to something similar, though. But what I didn't want to forget at this moment in the story is, at some point you had a son. Oh, Yeah. So there's this whole career happening, but you're also creating a family and a relationship. The proudest thing in my, you know, in my life is my my son Edward, who is the um, apple of my eye, and I, and he was born actually the month after the first book came out. I remember my father coming to the hospital to see his grandson, and um, I gave him a copy of my book, and he looked at it and, and picked up Edward as, as he should should have done. I find it interesting that your first kid happens at the same moment as your first book. Yeah. You have this huge success, and then you have this kind of not distraction, but this other thing to focus on, which is the beginning of a life. Yeah. In those early days of parenting, were you feeling like, I should be writing, I should be drafting off the success I just had, or I can kind of hang out and get into this? Didn't really think about it in those terms. It just seemed that we're just, you know a whole set of things to do. And I was I was teaching in a, a provincial university in another part of my life in these years, in the 80s and first half of the 90s, was that I was um, uh, a member of the Labour Party and uh, an activist, but not in that way that people talk about it now as if it's some, oh, I'm an activist. I was, I was a useless activist. I was crap at going onto doorsteps and getting people to vote. But my partner at the time, she was very good at it. So we spent a lot of time doing that kind of just getting the vote out kind of work for the Labour Party because the threat in Britain at that time was the threat of Thatcherism, the reality of Thatcherism. And uh, the only vehicle to remove Thatcherism with was the Labour Party. Therefore, the Labour Party had to become electable. Right. And uh, I was involved in, you know, as a lot of people were who were on the different parts of the left, we joined the Labour Party and um, we were kind of pragmatists. Yeah, we wanted Labour to get power. Yeah. It took, you know, 18 years and it took the form of Tony Blair, uh, whose period has been largely misunderstood because it's all seen through the lens of the Iraq the Iraq War and Bush, which is a which is a real pity because um, good things happened in the early years with um, with Blair and Gordon Brown. Like my mother's, you know, pension went up and right. you know, the the health service was better provided for. And um, yeah, but there was a major trauma that shifted everything, and that was the time you came to New York. Oh yeah, yeah. Later on, yeah. Mm. What what brought you to New York? It was fairly clear from around the late 90s that the the intellectual context that I had at the University of Essex and in Britain was becoming less interesting. People had left, had retired, had died, or just kind of run out of steam. So I was part of a generation of people who felt very lively and a lot of people didn't follow through with that. So it felt that the, the context was less interesting 
I was becoming less interesting. The work was becoming less interesting. Like I feel myself ending up as a kind of university administrator with a few PhD students, and I'd stopped really teaching new stuff. This happens a lot in in Britain. Happens a lot in universities, and um, it's a much longer version to this story. But then when my son was old enough so that he could fly here to New York and I kept a bit of my job back in England so I I was going back and forth a lot for the first five years and he was coming here. When that was doable, I thought, you know, well, the uh, intellectual level in the United States was higher, seemed more exciting, more interesting. And the new school for social research was somewhere where I... It just turned out that I knew everybody, right? Everybody was called Bernstein. <laughs> so Richard Bernstein, Jay Bernstein, who was my first undergraduate teacher, Jay Bernstein. And there was this department and uh, I had the chance to, to work there and it was... Which has this amazing history. Yeah, this amazing history of kind of saturated in the German intellectual tradition... French intellectual tradition, and also somewhere that's a direct consequence of the the effects of National Socialism, the fact that the New School for Social Research was set up in 1933 in New York to house German-Jewish professors that had just been sacked because the Nazis had come to power. There's a history of being a a university in exile, a university in exile uh, of a political character with very particular ideas of intellectual rigor and standards and so when I got to the new school I was particularly proud because at at that point I was the only non-Jew in the philosophy faculty so there was I was like the I was at the honorary Gentile it was like the Shabbat's Goy I think it's called I was a Shabbat's Goy I was a Shabbat's Goy then he did one non-Jew around they used you to turn the lights on that's right that's right he's not that smart but he'll do (laughs) (laughs) and I realized that if I was going to survive here I had to raise my game because I was with people, Agnes Heller, Yeri Yovell, Richard Bernstein. These were people that could teach me, you know, in, into the ground. These these were serious intellectuals. So coming to New York was a real feeling of having to really increase the levels of uh, quality in what I was doing. Did you like teaching as opposed to writing? Hmm. I shouldn't say this. I don't think I like teaching i think it's something i do i don't think i'm particularly i don't think i'm particularly good at it i think i can find certain people and pull them through and uh you know i've had some extraordinary students at the new school who've i've been able to kind of help them develop their talent and that's a joy you know i think there are better teachers than me but i think i can uh i can turn a sentence so I think I, I've been able to develop a form of of, of writing. So what I've, what I've you know, consciously tried to do, I think in the last 15 years, really since being here, is to try and develop an idiom of thinking that is, I think is serious and it's deep, but it's also, I like to hide things under the surface. Yeah. Right? I don't want to you know, name drop, I don't want to use jargon, all the stuff is there if you want to look, but you could read this just you know just a straight say op-ed. So why why I like writing op-eds for the New York Times, and this was something that I, I had to learn to do, and it's been a real joy. Is that I worked out that I could I could hide things in op-eds, a little submarines, right? So you can write for an audience, and it just seems you're making a clear, compelling case, maybe saying Very something objective, funny, yeah, right. But under the surface, there can be all this other stuff going on, and that. That way of doing philosophy where you hide the engineering, you hide the kind of the drainage systems and the, you know. and Well, it leaves room for people to come in. Yeah, yeah, it's accessible. And, and I want, I think everything can be said clearly and simply. Philosophy is not difficult. Uh, jargon is pointless and inexcusable. And I think that things can be said clearly, but that doesn't mean that they're, Simple. You can exactly. say things that are deep and straightforward. And so that commitment to clarity doesn't mean you have to sacrifice uh, rigor and seriousness. Well, there's another part of writing that, that, that 
I've never forgotten when she said, I write in order to forget. Yeah. And that can mean a lot of things. What, is it, what does that mean to you when you say that? It means to get things out of your head. There are things rumbling around my head. And uh, when I've written them, they're gone. And then I can fill my head up with other things. So for me, it's like um, a detox or going to the toilet or something. It's, a, it's an evacuation. Once I've got that out, it's out. And I don't remember it. I can remember it. I could look at it and, oh, yeah, okay, I said that. Yeah, okay, yeah. But it's not what's going on in here at the moment. So to clear out in order then to to open up space to allow new things to happen. Disown in a way. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's uh, yeah, to disown and also to, to try and maintain a curiosity and an openness to things. I guess what I do like about teaching is that it gives me extraordinary access to the minds of young people and what they're thinking about. And now, actually, with, with Zoom, people complain about online teaching. I love it. So I've done, you know, one-on-one Zoom meetings with my students. I know where they live, <laughs> inside their room. You know, in a sense, there's a kind of revealing that takes place here. And, and you can talk to them as adults, because they are adults. You know, and then they'll just say, have you read this? Have you looked at this? And I'll always follow that. So at the moment I'm reading, best book I've read in the last month, The Psychopath Test by John Ronson. Because uh, a student mentioned it to me and I'm just, I can't stop it. I can't stop reading it. It's just so good. I wish I could write like John Ronson. I wish I could make documentaries like Adam Curtis. But these things are not for everyone, though. I'm glad you don't make documentaries like Adam Curtis, actually. And I think if you did make Adam Curtis documentaries, they'd be more understandable than Adam Curtis's, mm-hmm. who we both love, of course. So, but he's found. I think form, we bonded right? over hypernormalization, actually, when we first met. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Brilliant, brilliant film. So you've explored a number of topics in your books: Bowie, mm-hmm. football. Mm-hmm. The last one I read was was on the Greeks, yes. tragedy of the Greeks and us. Which is so interesting, but but before we get into the specifics, what generally starts that process? I mean, I'm always wondering, well, how did he come to writing about Bowie? How did he come to write about the Greeks? What what starts the decision to to write? I'm very good at having one on one working relationships with people who are often men, right? So there's a strange kind of homosocial side to. Um, the way I operate, which I, it's not something I think about. But if I think back, say, for example, the Bowie book, there's a friend of mine called Colin, who is editor, but more importantly, he's from Liverpool, and we both support Liverpool Football Club. Do you spend a lot of time watching? I spend an awful lot of time watching Liverpool Football Club, and it means the absolute world to me, that team. And that's, um, so you're talking about sons, you know, or kids, my primary activity with my son I mean week on week day on day we'll be going over the team and and the joy of being a parent is that point you get to when they know a lot more than you do and so you become the student they become the teacher this happened about 10-12 years ago with my son so that we talk a lot about that so there's me you know I'm 60 years old uh, my son who will support the team for another 30 years and on my grandmother's you know, gravestone is the Liverpool Football Club crest, which I didn't even notice. I photographed it about 10 years ago. She died in 2001. And I photographed her grave to, and I, I showed it to someone. I said, there's a Liverpool football, LFC crest. I said, of course they're fucking, it's, it's the team. Of course, she, <laughs> of course there's that. We expected it to be Manchester United or something. What do you think? So from my grandmother to my son, that's a century of that team and that connection to place, right? which is a place that in my mind I'm from, although I'm not really from. Another reason for coming to New York is the John Lennon story, right? Lennon would say that in a certain light, at a certain time of the day, certain day of the week, um, New York would remind him of Liverpool. I feel that. They're similar cities, Liverpool smaller. By the water. They're commercial cities. They're cities by the water. They're ports. They're places where there's immigrants, right, where people are moving through. There's a roughness, but yeah. a humour. Yeah, it's a roughness. There's a humour. It's about money and about culture. 
That's it. These are not centres of government. These are not metropolitan centres. This is not Paris or London or Berlin. These are these are ports, and I love ports. I live in Brooklyn, and I can see the water and the, the harbour and the Verrazano Bridge and the idea that there is the Atlantic Ocean. This is hugely important to me in terms of the like a spiritual sense of this this of place. place yeah. And also with the pandemic, what I'll say is that, I mean, I, I find that I love New York, as they say, but, but during the pandemic, I think now I, I feel a kind, of, a kind of a renewed fanaticism about the place. But you have to be careful to avoid what you've always criticized after 9-11, yeah. which was the sort of hubristic pride in New York. Yeah, yeah. But it is a unique and odd place, and I'm very happy to to be here. And also, I believe in, you know, I'm a kind of Heideggerian, so I believe that moods are not things in the head. Moods, emotions are things which are out there in the world. And I found it an enormous comfort in the last six months that what I'm feeling is what seems to be being felt in the city. That I, It's not just me. There's a phenomena. There's a phenomena, and it changes. So, you know, and during the April, May, it felt, and then obviously after the killing of George Floyd, we went through just a series of moods, but you felt this, this, this was a shared phenomenon. We were all going through this. And that's, um, and that's, that's cool, right? That, that's a really cool thing to, to be part of. So your question was something else, though. I've forgotten. Well, we were talking about your books. And- oh, yeah, yes. Yeah, so I was talking to Colin about Liverpool, about the team, and we had to, we had to do a season review. Because you've got to do a season review. New season was beginning. He was away for the summer. So we met. Yeah. So what do we think? What's going on? What's going on with the team? What's going to happen? And there was a lull in the conversation. And he says, so what else are you doing? So, I'm, I'm, I seem to be writing something on Bowie. I'm thinking about writing something on Bowie. So I explained it to him. He said, oh, well, that, yeah, that could be a book. So I wrote it. And then Colin said something else. He said, well, it's a bit kind of linear, isn't it? You just, it was about, when I wrote it, it was kind of life and work. Mm. He said, this is a bit dull. Couldn't you do it in some other way? So then I was thinking about cut-up technique and uh, Burroughs and Geisen, or Brian Geisen. And so I just got a hard copy of the, the manuscript and I then began just to move pages around and do cut-up and kind of think, well, I could put that Cut-up with pages instead yeah. of single words. Yeah, and then just think, well, actually, if I put that with that, that actually kind of works. So I just then began to do a kind of counterpoint structure. I do believe in counterpoint as well. Yes, you do. And it comes out in a lot of your work. Uh, One of the things that I've been thinking about with your writing that I wanted to ask you is, you know, I always wonder, you know, do you like to write? And I know that it's sort of a job mm -hmm. for you. Like is a tough word. Mm. You, you, You like to do other things. Yeah, I think I think it's, uh, I mean, you know, I'm teaching this class with Christian Madsbjerg on human observation this semester. It's the third time we've taught together. And we're trying to get students to think clearly about phenomena, observe phenomena, which is a very hard thing to do. And the first week I give them two essays by George Orwell, Why I Write and Politics in the English Language. And just to see that here's someone Look at what Orwell says about writing and look at how Orwell writes. There's no fat here. In basic rules, if there's a a word with many syllables versus a, a word with less syllables, use the word with less syllables. Use the active voice, not the passive voice, things like that. Orwell says that writing is a, a painful, a ridiculously painful activity that is driven by vanity and narcissism right this is you have to begin from that writing is hard and what's driving the writing is is a basic vanity that writers have but if you're cunning and you're clever you can push yourself out of the way of the writing and allow something else to appear so for me you got to get to that place right you know simone Weil had this idea of decreation Right, they have to decreate, pull away yourself, in order to open a space that for her was a space of the relationship to God. For me, it's more that you have to pull away yourself, strip things away, in order to open a space where you can actually uh, think and write 
and develop a form where that becomes possible. So I think the the good bits about writing uh, are when you found the form. The form begins to appear. And then you And you can kind of stress test it yeah. after you go. And then you can then you can begin to mess with it and you can begin to stretch it and pull it and then you can then you can begin to bury things. Uh, so if there's all these references, I think lose the references, bury those, and then someone might see you know, your passing you references. You also explore kind of possibilities of what you're becoming. Yeah. In a way, through your mm-hmm. writing. That's why I think they're so varied, because you're new every time you're writing. Yeah, absolutely. You're not returning as, as many ineffective writers do, mm-hmm. where you, you feel like, have they learned something since the last mm-hmm. book? <laughs> I was listening to Steve Coogan and Armando Iannucci talking about this uh, yesterday afternoon. And Coogan was talking about improvising. Improvising as writing, writing as improvising. I've always been very interested in comedy and in writers' rooms and what goes on. And the sense that what you get as a writer is that if you give yourself that license to just do it and you know that you're not totally going to screw it up because it's kind of worked in the past. But at that point, you go out to the edge of the springboard and you just, you know, you've got to hold yourself out there. The problem with writing is that people are too consumed with anxiety, inhibition and all of that stuff. And that gets in the way. You have to be bold and take risks. And as you get older and you've done more of it, yeah, then you can begin to let that go where it goes, which is what I think with a great comic, a great comic every night or every act is doing that, is putting themselves out there. They know that it's probably not going to go wrong because they've done this a thousand times, but still... They're taking that risk. There's that edge. Yeah, of completely falling on their face, of dying. Well, you wrote a book about it called On Humor. Yeah. Where you explore the role that humor, jokes, laughter, smiling, play mm-hmm. in human life. What did you discover in the process of writing this? I mean, I knew you were a huge fan of comedy mm-hmm. from the Marx Brothers growing up. Mm-hmm. And, and But you've also been deeply interested in contemporary comics and mm-hmm. and, and their role in life. What did you discover during the book? Firstly, you don't need a philosophy of humour. That's my point, is that humour is itself an activity of philosophical reflection. So I like that. It's a book you don't need, right? So the the book is a kind of ladder you can kick away or ladder you don't even need. So to be able to tell jokes or to engage in humorous banter requires a level of um, cognitive, conceptual complexity, which is worthy of any, any, any philosophy, it seems to me. And then to ask yourself, well, what's going on in, in humour? There are a thousand different ways of doing that. But for me, it really comes down to the distinction between laughing at others and laughing at yourself. You know, so often bad humour will be laughing at others. And interesting humour is usually laughing at yourself. And I think about this in relationship to a joke that, uh, that Freud tells because you know, Freud was funny um, and collected jokes, which people always forget about Freud. He says, this is joke, a man is condemned to be hanged. He's in his cell. On the morning of his execution, he comes out from the cell, walks into the courtyard and sees the gallows ahead of him. Looks at the gallows, looks up at the sky and says, well, the week's beginning nicely. <laughs> As Freud says, why is this funny? What's going on in this? And his answer is that in in humour, we look at ourselves from outside ourselves and we find ourselves ridiculous. And that finding oneself ridiculous is the key thing. Comedy, jokes, have a relationship to the unconscious, Freud says. So if I I made a series of, say, uh, homophobic gags like now, I did seven homophobic gags. You might, Andrew, you might think, well, maybe Simon's got a problem with his relationship to homosexuality and the jokes are kind of a way of dealing with this. It's repression. of That's Freud's view. So jokes are kind of repressed content. And that's fine. There are ways of reading the unconscious. I mean, Trump is a good example of that. Uh, But humour is something else. Humour is this ability to reflexively look outside yourself 
and then to find yourself ridiculous. And in that moment, you are both diminished and elevated. Right? And the best comedians yeah. can shift your thinking in the way the best philosophers can. Mm -hmm. So they can take you down a road and so and you have a problem with it. And then they can take you down a, a deeper road that you have even more of a problem. You go, that's not so bad, is it? Mm -hmm. Louis C.K. does that very well. Yeah. And there are certain traditions, certain cultures. You know, I remember when Jews were funny. I'm that old. So for me, Jewish humor, the exposure to Jewish humor in the form of the Marx Brothers in particular, recently, I went back to Jack Benny because, you know, biggest star in the 1950s, Jack Benny show. And, you know, did those people out in the Midwest know Jack Benny was Jewish? Is that, you know, is that... Did they understand it? There's that question. But if you look at the, the technique that Benny had, firstly, it's hugely funny. It's all about indirection. It's as... Some of those early shows are as wild and as complex as, like, Charlie Kaufman narratives. And he'll do things by... His, this ability, the Jack Benny ability to, to pause and kind of look to his side... He does nothing. He's doing nothing. He's looking to his side. Oh, he's holding space. Yeah, he's holding the space and people are laughing. And he waits. Yeah, I think you can learn a lot from comedy. And I've been going back recently. This is kind of my, my kind of late evening pornography is things like you know, the Larry Sanders show. I will, I will delve and dive. And um, I'm always in the market for, for new stuff. And I, I hope to find new things, you know, and I like jokes, you know, like what do Winnie the Pooh and Attila the Hun have in common? The same middle name, things like that. <laughs> <laughs> <You know? laughs> well, one of the big fears about this current moment of kind of cancel culture mm -hmm. is that the, the confidence and fearlessness that you need mm -hmm. to actually practice humor is, is, is being threatened right now. Yeah, yeah. A lot of people say that. A lot of people criticize that. You know, Chappelle, who I like a lot. And again, again, what people get wrong about comedy, and Chappelle's a good example of how people get that wrong. Dave Chappelle, it seems to me, has a commitment to form. It's the form of stand-up comedy, right? Uh, a one-hour routine. And Chappelle, like great comics, will will produce that form. Plant the seed, yeah. let it grow. Let it grow. Brilliantly. Come back to it. Yeah. Divert the audience, plant the fake joke, pull it. But you, you know, you can't. And if you read that semantically, right? Dave Chappelle said Michael Jackson didn't do it. Yeah. You're missing the form. That's not the form of humor requires. There's a huge pair of scare quotes around the stage when you're watching yeah. comedy. And these big scare quotes are important because it gives people freedom and license to say anything. And that saying anything, it's comedy. It reveals all sorts of, but it's comedy. I see, you know, Chappelle in direct continuity with, you know, not just with, with, with prior, but with traditions of Jewish humour and English humour and all, all sorts of, of stuff. It's, it's about that commitment to form. And uh, I think there has to be a fearlessness at that level. It's hard to do, and people can be pretty stupid. Yeah. And the thing about humor is that... It requires context. It requires context, and it also requires the fact that it's the cultivation of intelligence, right? It's the, it means that to, to be a, a proper grown-up human being, uh, part of that apparatus is the intelligence to both tell gags or to to receive gags and to and to let them circulate that's this is the kind of sunshine Outside of the self yeah it's the sunshine of life it really is and it's and it's dark nothing is darker than than comedy right so i think about you know if i was gonna be rather grandiloquent that's how i'd like i'd like to see i mean what i do is it's like stand-up comedy, except it's not funny and you don't have to stand up, right? right? So it's kind of sit-down, non-comedy. That's kind of, that's how I see it. But it's a living. In well, the whole. other thing you do that, that I didn't want to let go is you've kept a music practice up yeah. your whole life. With some gaps, but try to, yeah. And uh, you produced a song during the pandemic. Yeah. You wrote a 
particularly profound track that you produced during the pandemic. I want you to talk about it a little bit, and I, I think we're actually going to break for a second to hear it. Okay. That was a, a little snippet of Eat Your Funky Dasein. Eat Your Funky Dasein. Ultimately, what was the message of the song? Oh, I don't know. It's, and how did it come out of this moment? Well, there's no, well, there's no message. Eat, eat Your Dasein is a phrase that Lacon uses, and I never knew what it meant, but I like it. Eat Your Dasein. And then Eat Your Funky Dasein just just sound like a strange thing to say and it kind of made sense then the feel your pain feel that pain go by was clearly you know i'm thinking about that in relation to the pandemic and just yeah. feeling that what what we've been through uh we need a break we need something you know simple powerful memorable that's gonna say to us it's okay and you can have a good time and life it's not great but it can be good fun and there's music which can just light things up so it's a kind mm. of oh i don't know just to get people to to feel that joy that you only feel when you're listening to music suddenly mm. i only feel when i listen to music yeah and there's so much about it that it's about sort of integrating this experience and owning it and mm -hmm. and feeling it and not rejecting it which i think mm -hmm. is fantastic so i think i want to end there simon this was amazing Pleasure, Andrew. It was good fun. Thank you. I love talking about myself. I'd be happy to do it for hours. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's great. And it's nice to be we're actually physically, this is not a Zoom conversation. No, we're physically in the same room. We're actually room. physically in the same room, socially distanced, and um, it's been a great pleasure. Thanks very much for coming. Extra thanks to our Season 3 sponsor, Alang Anzuna. Alang and Zuna's watchmakers are characterized by diligence, patience, artistry, a pursuit of innovation, and the persistent belief that everything is possible, followed by the ambition to achieve it. You can find more about Alang and Zuna at www.alange-soehne.com. And thank you for listening. You can find more episodes of Time Sensitive on our website, timesensitive.fm, or on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Listen to our other podcasts at a distance by heading to atadistancepodcast.com. You can also follow us on Instagram at slowdown.tv.